Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Will Mari, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the University of Texas at Arlington's Department of Communication. Located in the heart of the thriving Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, the UTA Department of Communication offers a growing master's degree program as well as outstanding undergraduate programs in journalism, advertising, public relations, broadcasting, communication studies, and communication technology. Our students are prepared to change the world. Learn more at uta.edu forward slash communication. In this episode, I'll be talking to Erica Perbanik-Smith, co-author of Emma Goldman's No Conscription League and the First Amendment, now available from Rutledge. The book examines the legal atmosphere and rampant xenophobia that contributed to Goldman's deportation for radical speech in 1919. I want to get right into some questions uh, with the book, with you uh, and your topic, and also with Jared and his work on this. But maybe tell me what inspired you to write about Emma Goldman and write a book about her and her activism in her life. Okay. Well, Jared actually was the one who came up with this idea. He had noticed that she was barely mentioned, Mm. if at all, in anything that talked about the history of the First Amendment during that time period. There are all these more famous cases, Shank, Abrams, uh, the usual ones that are cited in, in law books. And he felt that Emma Goldman had a contribution to the history of the First Amendment that was missing. And so he decided that he wanted to do some research in that area. Mm-hmm. And through a mutual friend, we were connected um, awesome. so that I could do the history part, he could do the law part, yes. and we could fill in that little bit of a gap in First Amendment history. As you got into the project with Jared, um, what were some things that struck you both, maybe remember you, maybe him separately, about her life that had been overlooked? Because she is not a, a person who's got as much attention to, as she deserves, but uh, even as you uncovered her life, what are some things that surprised you about your research, about her and her activities during this First World War especially? She was quite a firecracker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there, there have actually been uh, quite a few biographies of her that have been written. Yes. Um, I feel that where the attention mm-hmm. is lacking is in her work, obviously, in the, in the First Amendment, as, as Jared wanted us to cover, yeah. but also in her work with Mother Earth. Yes. And so there's uh, a great um, anthology of Mother Earth. Oh, really? uh, Of some of the articles that appeared in the magazine. But what doesn't often appear is how much she used that magazine for her advocacy. Interesting. And so I really appreciated, uh, as a media history scholar, a lot of what she did with Mother Earth to try to spread her ideology and the ideology of anarchy in general. That reminds me of people like Dorothy Day with their own publications, with, in her case, the the worker, Catholic worker, using that as a vehicle for other issues and topics. Right. Uh, I wonder, in the case of Goldman, I mean, you write about this in your book, and people should definitely check it out. It's worth checking out. Um, But maybe tell me, you know, was she alone in the way she perceived the world and her activism? Was she a unique person in this context of the First World War, especially, or did she have allies that were helpful? She had a lot of allies. The, the anarchist group, she, Mother Earth is an interesting 
title for her magazine, yes. and, and she she came up with it um, because of ties to nature, of course, but feeling like, you know, the, the, the earth is the, the mother of all, but I feel like she was also a maternal figure herself, yes. which is very interesting because she didn't feel maternal. She never wanted to have children. She never wanted to go into that traditional role. Uh, but as far as anarchism was concerned, she really was a maternal figure, especially in that, that New York mm -hmm. center um, of anarchy at the time. Yes. And so she did have a lot of allies. Um, then she, as, as far as when you're talking about World War I and no conscription, of course she didn't do no conscription alone. Mm -hmm. They had the No Conscription League, and there was her lifelong confidant, Alexander Berkman, yes. who was a huge part of that as well as um, some other folks, Leonard Abbott, of course, who was big in, in the Free Speech League, mm -hmm. and others who came and spoke at her rallies. Of course, all of these people who wrote for Mother Earth. Yes. You know, she was an editor at Mother Earth, but she was not the only one whose ideas and, and writings were published. So she had yeah. all of these people, but she was really sort of a central figure that brought all of these other folks together. Mm -hmm. And of course, then she's the one who wound up in prison. <laughs> yes, I was thinking about that, because she was friends with people like Margaret Sanger and other controversial people. And, right. and yet she was the one who was in jail. Uh, and I wonder if she, did she want this to be kind of what happened to her, or is this something that happened to her despite her own self-awareness? I'm kind of curious what you think about her motivations, if you know anything about those. Yes, she... <laughs> She was very interesting in mm. that, as she stated on multiple occasions, um, she was not afraid of prison. She was not afraid of death. She was not afraid of any of the things that were threatened sure. of her because of her beliefs. Mm. And what was more important to her was being able to voice her beliefs, to stand sure. up for her beliefs. And she even said at one point that prison was a blessing. Interesting. Um, I think perhaps because she had time to sit and to think yeah. and to clarify even what she believed in. And she came out of, she, she was in prison more than once. That's right. A number of occasions. There were, there were multiple arrests and there were multiple stays in prison. Yes. And of course the, the last one before she was deported was the most lengthy and the most difficult on her. Mm -hmm. But every time that she was imprisoned, she had, opportunity to think about her beliefs, to, um, you know, clarify, to, to do more writing, and came out of those prison stays stronger and more adamant yeah. about the things that she believed rather than being beat down yes. by what was uh, supposed to be punishment. And so in some ways, like other figures throughout the 20th century who have spent time in jail and have used those experiences for another larger cause, thinking of Dr. King and other people with his letters from Birmingham Jail. Like, these experiences were not wasted, it seems like. They were not. They were not. utilized them. Right. Like the suffragists themselves. Right. Um, what's what's a, a contrast, though, between her movement, let's say, and the suffragist movement? I mean, in, in terms of the tactics, because her, her people were, were anarchists, which was uh, a very controversial group, and I'm, I'm probably understanding this at the time, societally speaking, but in contrast to other more conventional, in air quotes, sort of activist movements, what are some things that were different with her people and her circle than other movements that you guys found out in terms of free speech and First Amendment boundary pushing? Do you guys find anything like that that was a bit different? 
I don't know that they were very different. Really? Okay. You know, because when you think about the suffragists, you think about they're trying to push political boundaries. That's true. And you think about, you know, they're also being beaten and arrested mm-hmm. uh, for things that they believed. Uh, so I, I don't, I wouldn't say there are a lot of contrast. I would okay. say there's a lot of comparisons. Yeah, I, I guess with the silent sentinels and that kind of more, uh, more let's bring it on, you know, type of activism. We, we might even call it, um, it's not social protest, but um, sort of civic resistance, maybe is the term. Um, did she lay the groundwork for other later people to be inspired by her like after her time was over? Because she, she's, she's gone, and then there's a movement that's still here in the United States, and we have the interwar period, and we have the Second World War, and then later on Vietnam. I mean, going down the line. I mean, people mention her example explicitly. Did you guys find anything like that later on? Now, I haven't looked a lot beyond her deportation, but I do know that plenty of people were definitely inspired Mm. by her. Uh, Some of them to means that she wouldn't herself have advocated. (laughs) That's true. So, of course, in the book, I talk about uh, Solgaz and his assassination of President McKinley. And he famously said that she inspired him. Um, and she was not an advocate of violence. No. She was very much a pacifist. But there definitely were folks during her time that wanted to have the courage that she did mm. uh, to stand up for themselves, to stand up for others, for other immigrants, for other laborers, um, for other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were a lot of issues that you know, she took up that others took up as well and followed her lead in terms of just that courage uh, to go forward and and speak your mind. I'm thinking of Debs and the Workers of the World and other people we we think of as sort of these um, First World War activists who also did uh, direct action or maybe social protests with their strikes and so forth. But in some ways, I think what you're saying is you're, you're, you're saying her impact was felt throughout the rest of that era by other people who were inspired by her to get the flag of, of that more active resistance, right. not just in anarchy movements, but in other related movements. Right. Um, eventually, uh, I was asking you, uh, with the First Amendment issues that she raised with her, her own writings and own speeches and so on, um, do you think that people, even on her team, so to speak, uh, is there any evidence that they themselves were making her be the spokesperson for this? Like, did she get direct encouragement to be as forthright as she was? Or is this something she was, again, uniquely doing? It's something that she was doing, but mm-hmm. at the same time, she also pushed Berkman to sure. the forefront. Okay. And what was interesting is, of course, she, she was central in the No Conscription League, but when they had their rallies she would be the one who would come up and speak last. Oh, okay. So she would let Berkman speak. She would let Leonard Abbott speak. She would let, but really interestingly, she would let anyone speak. Huh. So that was a lot of people who say they're in favor of free speech. They say that meaning I'm in favor of speech that I agree with. Yes. Whereas that wasn't her at all. She really believed in complete freedom. Yeah. So for instance, with No Conscription League, they were against the war and they were definitely against people being drafted against their will Mm -hmm. to participate in the war. Uh, She wanted people to be able to do what they wanted to do. Hmm. So if they wanted to enlist, she felt they should enlist. But if they didn't want to enlist, she felt like they shouldn't have been forced. So she was against compulsory 
service. Uh, and then when she would have these rallies then, she would have protesters who would come. Mm. She would have especially people who were in the military mm. uh, voluntarily, yeah. who, who wanted to be in the military, who had enlisted in the military. She would have them come to heckle uh, and protest mm. against her protest yeah, of, of the draft. <laughs> and she let anyone speak. So if someone was against the draft, of course, they were welcome to speak. If someone was for the draft, they were welcome to speak. She felt that everyone should have complete freedom. Interesting. So she was kind of a First Amendment absolutist. Absolutely, yes. And in some ways, she previewed the much later development of the First Amendment that we have it as, as Jared might say, potentially as a more expansive idea. Right. Uh, Was she ever, ever... Someone who would advocate for any limits on on speech of hate speech, for example, was she, did she ever talk about like the edge that we should not cross over like a threshold, or was she never? She didn't. No, no. She Appreciate she felt it. that that everyone should have a chance to say what they want to say, and then even when, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Solgaz and mm. his yes. assassination of McKinley, uh, yeah. she did she didn't advocate violence, sure. but then after it had happened. You know, she had sympathy for him, and she did say, you know, he has the right to express himself. We should support his right to express himself. I understand why he did what he did. Yeah. So but I would say she definitely was an, an, an absolutist. Yeah. And, and ahead of her time in a, a number of ways. Of course. Um, and with her, her deportation, with the way that was written about, I mean, did you guys find the discourse around that? helpful at all? Was it was pretty much condemning of her departure, like get rid of the contemporary press? I mean, what was the, what was the word uh, that you guys sort of sensed about her departure? So she had a really contentious and interesting relationship with the mainstream press. Yeah. They, okay. they helped her in a lot of ways because th- they ridiculed her. Oh, yes. Um, and so in that way, in the coverage of everything that she did, they helped to build her notoriety. So they gave her free publicity. The platform. They gave her a platform and they gave her free publicity um, in the way that they criticized what she did. You know, they, they rose her to this status. Of, you know, they called her Red Emma. That's right. And they rose her to this status of notoriety where I even mentioned in my book, um, mothers threatened their children, Red Emma will get you if you don't behave. And so the press contributed, the press coverage of the the things that she did led to her notoriety. And then they would quote from Mother Earth. They would quote from her speeches. Mm -hmm. They quoted from the things that she and Bergman said in court. And so her ideas are being spread by the press, but at the same time, the press starts to debate uh, because of, of her trial and things going on at, the, at that time, the extent to which free, free speech should reach. So you have a lot at this time um, during her trial um, and during her Supreme Court appeal uh, talking about there are limits. You know, so the main, mainstream press is talking a lot about there are limits to free speech, especially in wartime. Yes. And that she had crossed all of these boundaries um, where they had very much tolerated her up until sure. the point of war. 
they started calling for her to be deported even before she was imprisoned. Mm. Um, and so therefore, because of that, when she was ultimately deported, it was celebrated. Okay. Yeah. And she was a good copy, even her departure, perhaps. Like they were just thinking about her as this as interesting, weird figure before the war, and then she becomes so red hot. Right. And so controversial. But even in that moment, they're still talking about her. So she kind of got what she needed from them in a way. She absolutely did. A very savvy communicator. Yes. And you have a Brilliant. Picture, picture of her in the book, and I can't show you guys because you're listening on podcast, but... We can her, put it on the transcript. We can put it on the transcript. Uh, there is a picture of her with an advertisement nearby. I'm, I'm trying to get the picture. Um, and she was savvy with the use of visual advertisements, too, it seems like, as well. Yes. And it was a pioneer in that regard as well. Right. Um, I mean, mostly what she did was with her speech. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, of course, any rally, there was signage. Mm-hmm. Um, slogans. Slogans and, and, and things like that. Of course... She was really great in terms of developing imagery for the front of her magazine. Yes, I was impressed by that. And so, for instance, um, you know, she was involved somewhat with the Wobblies, um, the IWW, um, and the issues that they were having in San Francisco. Yes. And so at some point, um, she and a colleague went to San Francisco, and they were actually kidnapped by an anti-wobbly group. What? Um, And the police let it happen. And they felt that this was an example. uh, Everything that went down there with with the wobblies, and particularly with them, was an example of speech being stifled. So there's a particularly famous issue of Mother Earth Mm -hmm. that came out um, immediately following that where you actually have a flag being jammed into Whoa. someone's mouth as an example of just saying, you know, patriotism stifling free speech. Interesting, because this is the era of the Alien Sedition Act, so President Wilson, under enormous pressure to stay out of the war and then to be in the war whole hog in April of 1917. And Americans were not of the same mind on this either. Right. They were divided. Right. Did you get a reaction from the German-American press that was uh, different from the... Um, mainstream English-speaking press? Was there, was there a better treatment of her in the German papers, or is there's not that's, much? That's not something that I've really looked at, but that's an interesting question. Um, kind, because she is sort of the only activist speaking against our involvement in a huge way. You know, I, I wonder about that. Now. You know, that is an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, I do know that she was very much revered by sure. a lot of immigrants because... You know, she was someone who, she was one of them. She, yes. she was a Russian immigrant herself and a Jewish immigrant, which, uh, so there, there were a lot of things working against her, I think. At the beginning. Right. Yeah. And uh, a reason that, you know, she was held up to ridicule, you know, being Russian at that time, especially after the Bolshevik Re- Revolution, yes. was not a great thing to be in this country. Bad brand to be associated. <laughs> right. I don't worry about that. Right. And so there definitely was a lot of support for her in the Yiddish-speaking community. Yes. And so you, know, you, you do see some, some Yiddish yeah. newspapers, of course, that, that are supporting what she's doing um, because she was really standing up for, for her people. Yeah, and I, I read one historian's account of the First World War and the German-American population, about a third of that huge chunk of the immigrant population was really opposed to the war, but they didn't want to say anything. And right. A third were kind of on the fence, and a third were whole hog kind of in favor of the war, and despite the fact they were German, they wanted to 
wanted to make themselves even more American. So I wonder if you actually find some more things you might, you know, that would be a really fun follow-up potentially. I was thinking about that. Um, Great. German. Nobody else steal that research yeah, idea. No one take that. Hear that, hear that first. This is, this is Erica and, and Jared's work. Um, <laughs> copyrighted. Uh, but, you know, I, I was thinking about the parallels later on with other activist movements and other conflicts. I mean, there does seem to be a small cadre of activists who are the most outspoken, who get the most arrested. And then another tier of activists who are more um, in their wake, maybe empowered by them. The Second World War had um, initially people like Charles Lindbergh, but other people like um, Mennonites and so on who were involved. But was there a Emma Goldman-like figure that came out along later on, do you know, in that conflict? Or maybe another project as well? I mean, I'm giving lots of work to do. Right. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's not something I've really, yeah. I've really looked at. But. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that always fascinates me, people who have such conviction to say no, and then not to say no, but say publicly and rally others to their cause. Right. And, and knowing that what you're saying is divisive and unpopular oh, yes. with such a large segment of the population, if you think about what the mainstream press was doing at the time, mm-hmm. um, if you consider the press a reflection of society, looking at the mainstream press and how they were so patriotic oh, yes. and how they were so, once, we're, once we entered the war, mm-hmm. once the United States entered World War I, being so supportive of the war, being so supportive of the military, yes. and being so supportive of these efforts to protect democracy, to protect America, to protect all of these symbolic things. Yes. And to have someone who is an outsider, who is an other, you know, this, this Russian Jewish immigrant mm-hmm. coming in and, and saying, this country shouldn't be in the war. She considered the United States her country. Yeah, this is her, this is her nation. It, it was her, her country, yeah. uh, and it wasn't that she was unpatriotic. It was that she believed a lot of what was happening in the American system was flawed, mm-hmm. and she believed that democracy had died. That's right. And so, right, her, her June issue of Mother Earth even mm-hmm. had you know, a tombstone for democracy. Right after we went into battle, so to speak. Be, right, because of what was happening with the war and what was happening mm. with conscription. You know, that was draft day. Yes, um, and, and so she felt pained mm. that these things that are supposed to be pillars of Americanism, democracy, freedom, those were being taken away from the American people. So she, on the one hand, is standing up and saying, your freedoms are being taken away. Your democracy is being taken away. Your voice is being taken away. Mm-hmm. These things that are supposed to be pillars of Americanism. And then she is being othered for that purpose, yes. saying, you're a Russian immigrant. You're a red. And what you're saying is not supportive of what's happening right now. Yes. In ways that are far more pronounced than, let's say, a Brian who opposed the Spanish-American War. He's a principled, you know, kind of a strange figure, but he's he's never questioned his Americanism. He's never questioned he's a white guy and he's powerful and well to do. But you have people like um, people like Goldman who are very suspected anyway, and they're speaking out and and they're they're speaking out in very dramatic ways, calling calling as as you said, you know, for people's attention, but also saying we are in very serious trouble and we should we should wake up. And I, I'm, I'm impressed by her story because of that reason, again, that she had such an outspoken 
uh, discourse around herself and her, her circle, but again, kept kept at it. Again, uh, how many times was she arrested? Let's just kind of go back to that figure again, you know? It was more than 10. More than 10. That's more than 10. We, we found uh, evidence uh, of at least 10 oh and a couple of stays in prison, uh, one due to her speech against birth control. Um, she spent a couple of days in prison, um, on, well, she spent a couple of days held on conspiracy charges, uh, due to the assassination of McKinley. Yeah. Um, earlier on. Er, Earlier. But, uh, her longer stays, one for speaking out against birth control and then, um, speaking out against conscription. Yes. I was thinking about her. Duration of jail time compared to people like Schenk and Gitlow, who were in jail, but they were like in jail for a one or one or one Z or two Z experience. And here she is going back into battle. She reminds me of Pinkhurst in some ways, just kind of like let's bring it on. I'm not, I'm not afraid of this this, this experience. No, she had no fear. No. She was beat down. Yes, um, it's true. She she was definitely beat down because if you look at the images in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, which were very fun to find. I had a lot of fun oh, man, uh, really looking, looking for images. Happy Trust and other really cool sources. I mean, yes, this is awesome. But if you look at, you know, not much before her imprisonment, she now, <laughs> she was criticized for her looks. Sure. Um, the press, uh, you know, the, the press said some mean things. Pretty vicious. Yeah. The, the press, you know, talked about her, her being ugly. Yeah. Um, the press talked about her being portly. The press... You know, talked about her being mannish, mannish, um, very masculine looking, uh, unattractive, and, and, and all of those things. But I don't believe any of that to be true. If you look at an earlier picture, you know, she, she, she looks young. She looks vigorous. Very vibrant. Vibrant, yes. But if you look at the picture that they took at Ellis Island right before she was deported, she looks 10 years older in that picture than she did in one taken maybe a year or two earlier. So she definitely was exhausted yes. by the experience, uh, but she still was unafraid. She was still writing mm. uh, about her ideas, even from prison. She was still corresponding with fellow anarchists, with communists, with uh, others who shared her ideals mm. while she was in prison. Um, and you know she went on for the rest of her life, yes. though not in the United States. Elsewhere. Europe. Elsewhere, yeah. Europe, Canada, mm-hmm. uh, a lot in Canada. Canada is where she passed. That's right. Um, you know, she had a lot to do with the Spanish Revolution. You know, she, she, she did a lot. So she remained outspoken. She didn't quit. She never quit. Even though she wasn't in the U.S. Correct. Yeah. She's buried in the U.S. That's right. Now, where is, where is your ultimate resting place? She is in Chicago. It's actually home to a lot of really interesting people in terms of their final place they, they wound up. Right. Yeah. But the whole thing that launched her into anarchy mm-hmm. was the Haymarket Square yes. uh, situation where, of... where you had anarchists being uh, executed. That's right. Shot, essentially. Yeah. Who were not even present for the, the riot that occurred there. That's and, right. And so that really um, attracted her to the cause of anarchy. And so she wanted her wishes were to be buried near those people. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, it's such an important corrective to be able to to have the, the focus on her life um, that you guys bring with your book. And I, I definitely think it's a huge contribution. Uh, two more questions and we'll, we'll finish up. But 
what is the ultimate legacy of Evan Goldman's life in 2019, more than a century later? I mean, you're kind of the expert on this right now, you and Jerry, no <laughs> pressure. But in this moment, where we have similar anxieties and fears and big stakes, I mean, what is the legacy of someone like, like Evan Goldman right now? It really is an interesting time. Yeah. You know, I would say in a lot of ways, our time now is parallel to mm-hmm. the time then, yeah. although it may be different sure. immigrant groups. Yeah. That, um, that are being othered, uh, different immigrant groups that are being, you know, detained. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot of the same rhetoric oh, yes. flying around now as there was in her time. So I, I think there are certainly some folks today who are willing to stand up uh, against some of that rhetoric um, I don't know that they're necessarily thinking about Emma Goldman. Sure. But maybe they should be. But they, maybe they should be. Yeah. And with that in mind, then, um, with people who are first approaching her life, just, I guess I, I lied, just I have one more question out of this one. Where, where should they start? Just read your book, obviously. If they want to know more about Berkman and Goldman and, and anarchists of the First World War era and before, I mean, where should they begin their own reading about this conference? Is another work that you recommend to people? Or? Her? Books, books are yeah. definitely fantastic sources. Yeah. Um, she wrote a wonderful memoir called Living My Life. Oh, okay. And I would say that's an excellent place to start because uh, when, it, when it was originally published, it was published in two volumes. Mm-hmm. And she had a lot to say oh, sure. about everything that she went through. So I always talk about with my students especially, you know, going to those primary sources. Yes. So looking at Mother Earth mm-hmm. also, um, Half a Trust oh, yeah. has a lot um, of the issues of Mother Earth. So being able to look at the things that she wrote, the things that she said, um, that's an actual excellent source. Alexander Berkman had mm-hmm. his own very short-lived magazine, but um, mm-hmm. still a good one uh, to look at for especially his point of view. That was called The Blast. Blast. And that, that was published um, out of the same building as, <laughs> as Mother Earth, but they were complementary in sure. a lot of ways. And then there are a lot, of, um, a lot of documents held at UC Berkeley. Okay. Um, there's an Emma Goldman collection. Now, what happened when her, office, her Mother Earth offices were raided, mm-hmm. the government took so much. Oh, wow of the documents, uh, basically took everything. Hmm. They took all of the Mother Earth documents, they took her personal documents. Um, you know, so even if she had wanted to donate her papers somewhere, yeah. everything from her time in the United States was basically gone, confiscated, confiscated and never given back. Okay. But um, the fine folks at UC Berkeley <laughs> yes. have managed to collect um, from other places so many things. That's awesome. Uh, so many documents, um, and some of that is even online at archive.org. Um, so those would be great places to start if you want to learn more about her and, and what she did. And of course, there's uh, so many books out there. I, I wouldn't want to point out one in sure. particular um, because there there have been several really good mm-hmm. biographies yeah. that have been that have been written that will tell you more from from different perspectives some from the anarchist perspective some from the gendered perspective mm-hmm. um, and some more you know talking about her life from a sociological and even psychological mm-hmm. perspective so there's there's a lot 
good looks into her life out yeah. there. And that, yeah, in that regard, she really does remind me of, of Day and other people, you know, who have, have caused a lot of discussion, but in her case, not enough. I'm glad you are helping rectify that. That's really important in terms of the, the First Amendment issues Thank and you. free speech. Um, we asked this of all our guests, but the last question, I promise for reals, is why does this matter, this kind of work matter? Why does journalism history or media history matter now? Because journalism history is the history of everything. We are, the journalists are the historians. You know, we are documenting the things that are happening in our time. So anything that's appearing in our newspapers, anything that's appearing in our news broadcasts, um, anything that's appearing in our news magazines, we are documenting the events of our time. And so going forward, as journalism historians look at the journalism occurring at various points in time, we are able to tell all of these wonderful stories mm -hmm. about people potentially in the margins sure. who express themselves through media, mm -hmm. um, but also you know, being able to tell history through journalism. And I think it's a, a wonderful thing. Thanks for tuning in. And additional thanks to our sponsor, the University of Texas at Arlington's Department of Communication, and the Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Will Mari, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>